0: Hi everyone and welcome to Penny Lane episode six. I'm Sean Yeager, co-founder of TrueStream and your host. In today's episode, we have a terrific conversation with Derek Webb, a career-long singer, songwriter, recording and touring musician in what amounts to a mini masterclass on artist career development in the age of streaming. We discuss everything from the path to becoming a middle-class musician, using streaming to cultivate super fans, and how emerging technologies like VR can foster or hinder connection and empathy between artists and fans. I know you're going to love this, so we'd appreciate your five-star rating. Tell a friend and provide us any feedback you have. Thanks so much and enjoy. So Derek, with a career spanning over 25 years and counting, you've no doubt seen a a great deal of change in the music industry Mm. uh, as a whole and contemporary Christian music, where your records have historically been placed and played, Um, and in the evolution of your music and career. You know, tell us a bit more about your story so far, what's brought you to where you are today as a songwriter and recording artist.
1: Right. Well... um... I think I think my greatest strength is the fact that the the great the biggest advantage that I've had is the fact that I have I've spent most of my life and certainly my early life um, uh, under the impression at least that I just couldn't do anything else <laughs> and 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 that's not just that wasn't just the impression I had for the, at least the first half uh, of of my. The first two thirds of my career i'll say i I really couldn't I mean when I was a kid um at a time when most kids were finding things that they were excelling in, be it academics or sports or social stuff or whatever, I was horrible at everything that was being measured during my you know childhood adolescence i I just and um and so you know when um when I was really young, when I was probably whatever five, five or six or seven years old, I just realized that I was good at music, that I really enjoyed it, and that I had some proficiency for it, and and uh, and um, which I think, you know, as I'm like Malcolm Gladwell style trying to analyze right. what led. Because when you say I re-, you know, oh well, how did you realize that? Because not everyone realizes stuff sure. like that. And you know, it's because my mom was a musician, and so she had grown up, and she was a great pianist and um had had done a lot of study and uh, in that and uh, and um but also had a great ear for music which not a lot of trained musicians do and and so i had that advantage i had a great essentially a great music teacher living in my house and um and instruments around you know so we we had what i realize now everyone doesn't have uh necessarily which is like instruments we had a piano always in the house we had my mom didn't play guitar but she had a she was a frustrated guitar player and she did have a guitar buried in a closet which i remember the saturday afternoon i went and dug out and tuned it up to a i didn't know how to tune a guitar and you know played it dolly parton style with one finger you know on the frets and was fantastic and, and so anyway, and
0: how old how old do you think you do you recall oh uh, when point, you discovered
1: the guitar that i mean i would have been so little i mean i literally would have been like i said like three four five fantastic. You know? and uh, i was very really little and so once i realized that and they're like oh well here's the thing i can do and here's the thing that i that i'm good at and i enjoy you don't know that you're good at something later when you have something against which to compare yourself right. or somebody or but I realized later that I was that I was good at it and um, I just knew that I enjoyed it and I didn't there wasn't anything else I was really enjoying at that point in my life, you know, because I was everything else was so frustrating. But um, and so I really just committed early is the point I'm trying to make. Like once I found that I was like, OK, well, this is going to be my thing then, because, uh, you know, when, when you go through some some years or some time, and I'm sure this is true of a lot of seasons of life. Um, and you see people kind of figuring themselves out and figuring out what they're good at, and um, and you don't have that. And you don't find that. It really it, you start to get a little frantic after a little panicked, and and uh, so once I found music, even just a little bit of it that I had the opportunity to identify, I, I, I just grabbed onto that, and that and that was kind of my thing. And I just was like, well, I'm I'm making this my thing, and. Uh, I just really focused on it and, and I think the other part that you put with those other elements that were necessary for this to have happened was the fact that I didn't know then it was so early but I have a really extreme personality and so I do nothing in moderation nothing and I'm either doing something all the way or I'm not doing it and so for me you know, I wound up um just myself into it. And it's it's really kind of, it, it's the kind of thing that that nearly sabotaged my early life because I, I, I did it, you know, by the time I was in junior high or high school, I was probably spending eight to 10 hours a day on headphones in my room playing guitar and practicing guitar. Right. And literally couldn't give a crap about school or anything else. And so everything else was just falling apart, but music, I mean, I'd probably logged my 10,000 hours by the time I was 13 and, wow. you know, so I, and, and nothing. And so it, but, and it was equal parts good and bad because yes, it was causing me to pretty much flunk out of school, but it also kept me out of a lot of trouble in my early life. Like I remember, um, the, you know, this band that I, I was always in bands with older kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so I remember when, like uh, maybe a freshman in high school and I, in this band and full of seniors and, co- and early college age guys and um we were playing a uh, we had this rehearsal space at this uh, at our our drummer and, and singer were brothers and they had a house in houston where i was living at the time and and we would rehearse there and this one weekend we were having a rehearsal and we decided to invite people over so it kind of became a party and and um and we were going to play a set you know for i remember somebody handing me a uh like a wine cooler or something something really odd just a hangover in a bottle something really <laughs> sugary and awful and anyway Boone's I, Farm or something uh the worst yeah yeah and so i but i i drank it and 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 it was fun kind of i remember kind of feeling a little loose and but then we came time to play and i picked my guitar up and and it just made me it you know I I was playing really sloppy yeah. and I and I at that time I was really like a aiming to be a really technically proficient guitar player. I was a lead guitar, electric lead guitar player. So I was like really practiced in scales and in lead you know lines and and it just was making me play like I remember thinking going home that night and thinking, okay, I got it. So alcohol makes me play really sloppy and like shit. So I'm not ever going to drink again because in it, it, anything that makes my music better, I'm going to do anything that doesn't, I'm not. And that's just that. And I went home and just, and I literally didn't drink again in high school. I mean, I, I mean, I, wow. and and it wasn't a moral thing. It was just
0: incredible focus. It, it, well, and, and
1: because I was like, this is my thing and I'm not mm-hmm. going to, I'm not going to risk screwing this up. You know, this is, this is a bit I found something and I'm not going to let go of it. And, uh, and I often think to myself, I'm glad that I, that that story wasn't that somebody gave me, you know, like a hit of acid and I had like a, like a Jimi Hendrix, Steve Jobs Positive type experience. experience. Right, right. Yeah. And cause I'd be a drug addict now. Um, so,
0: well, what I so appreciate about stories like yours, Derek, are that, you know, I think so often um, we certainly myself, I look at people who've, who've achieved certain success and notoriety and we, we often mistakenly assume that. This was just a, you know, mastery of so many things. And mm. and to hear you talk about um, the level of, I'm sure, anxiety associated with this is my thing and I better get it right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I th- I'm thinking about... Uh, Dave Grohl's keynote for South by Southwest mm. a few years back. And I don't you know if you recall or saw that, but, mm-hmm. you know, he talks about and, and just shares with incredible passion and graciousness, his appreciation for that next kid in their bedroom,
1: mm. uh,
0: obsessing, you know, with the headphones on for yeah. hours and hours and hours. And I always remember that. And it sounds like clearly that was, that was your experience. And we, you know, we talk about in your bio, the one lesson, I love that, you know, the one lesson you took and then you were self-taught. When, when did that fateful single (laughs) lesson occur? How old would you have been?
1: Um, I was probably, um, man, I was little, I would have been early grade school. So like maybe, you know, second or third grade, um, somewhere in there maybe. And yeah, there was this great music shop in, in Memphis where I'm from and was living at the time. And, um, there was this h uh, and h music, and um I think that's what it was. I think it was h and h and uh so uh, my my parents, you know, my mom mainly uh told me that you know she wanted me to go and take lessons and so um and so I was like, okay, that's fine and and you know, went and had this one lesson with this guy, and basically, you know, we, we were working out of this Mel Bay guitar book of chords.
0: Oh, of course. And, uh, the classic <laughs> right. Mel Bay. Yeah. And, um,
1: and what I realized he was doing, I mean, it, just, I, it didn't take me a second to figure out that he would come in and he would say, okay, I want you to learn all the chords on the first three pages. And it was one of those books where it had the the tab, the tablature or whatever right. you would call it to show you exactly where to put your fingers. And then a picture of the hand on the strings playing it. And, um, he would say, okay, learn all the chords on the first three pages. And would, that'd be about nine chords just sitting here and just go through each one and whatever. And then he left. And so what he was doing and he would come back, you know, maybe 20 minutes later, it was an hour long lesson. He'd say, okay, you know, now do this. And he would leave again. And he was running like three lessons at once. And he was just like going room to room. Oh and, wow! And I was like, well, listen, if this guy, if this is what it's going to be, I'll just take this book home and I can do this on my own. I can learn all these. <laughs> I can just sit around. And, and so I did, I took, I told my mom, I was like, listen, I've got the book. I don't need, to sit with this guy. I can do this.
0: This is second, third grade.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah the, the word
0: precocious comes to me. <laughs> probably. <laughs> and um, I, I think my mom was probably okay with it.
1: Cause I was finally using my powers for good, you know, like rather than <laughs> taking that out on teachers or something. Right. Um, Cause I was always a kind of a problem kid, but anyway, so I, and I took that thing home and I just learned all the chords out of the book. It probably took me a week and I learned all the chords. I just sat up and just, I was like, but I had something to push me forward. And so right. I just obsessed on it. And I think I've kind of always been like that with any new piece of software, any new instrument, any new um, style of music that was previously unknown to me that I can get into and learn a bunch of stuff about how they're doing it and making it and producing it. And I just will obsess on it and just squeeze everything I can and learn everything I can from it. And then I figure out what can I bring with me, you know, and then I incorporate it. And so that's what I did with that Mel Bay book, you know, and uh, I never took another lesson.
0: Wow. That's a, that's a great story. <laughs> I mean, and if we look at that and we, you know, fast forward through, uh, your story is not yet written, of course, sure. uh, in, in full, but you know, thus far, what would you say, Derek, as a touring, performing, recording artist, as a songwriter, you know, would you say there's a handful of sort of lessons or, or experiences like that have really shaped your career? Oh, what, what's, absolutely, what sticks with
1: you? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think, I think that, um, probably a version of that early lesson that really solidified several times more later is to to have a keen awareness of when you're in the moment of opportunity and not to miss it and to take advantage of it and not to think oh well you know that th- I'm sure that I'll have I'll, I'll 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 jump next time around but it feels too risky right. or I don't but like you you really have to realize when you're in that when you're in those moments and you have to both be ready and willing to take a jump and cuz cuz you know the next time that that really happened there were there are a few more times like um like my willingness to get right on that edge and jump off has really been one of the key factors at many pivot points along the way and I, and again I think it was because I thought I'm not I can't do anything else so I have no backup plan. I have nothing else to be like, Oh, well I could take this giant leap and it seems so risky or I can just do this safe thing. And this thing I know how to do that. I can fall back on. I had nothing to fall back on. Music was the only thing I had or knew how to do. So it made me very risk tolerant all, all the way through my life. And so I was always when given the opportunity, taking the risks and taking the leaps, because just a few years later when I was like, um, in, or really when I was in junior high. You know, like I was the only thing that ever gave music a run for its money for me uh, as a hobby was skateboarding. I got really into skateboarding when I was in junior high and spent a lot of my time practicing and learning tricks and stuff. But music was always the thing. I think, like you said, I don't think that it's that only certain people get the opportunities. It's that not everybody recognizes the opportunities.
0: Right. Well, you know, on that note, and one of the one of the questions I'd made a note here of, and it sounds like you've you've touched on it certainly is, you know, do you feel like your arrival as an independent artist was inevitable? Was that in the plan, so to speak, or as you say, the moment arose and and it it looked like an opportunity that you needed to seize?
1: I mean, I um, I really feel like I have. Um, I've been really fortunate in my career, and and although I'm not someone who most people would know, and I'm certainly not famous, but I have made a living at this for more than twenty years, and um, you know it's the only job I've had as an adult, and uh, pretty much, and so I, I don't um, think that's a result of my being super talented or or having any kind of a really great, well-executed plan or something that I that was a strategy from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think it's just been kind of following coordinates um, just all the way through and coming to each point and being always ready to jump and looking for that, you know, that next opportunity to, you know, even if it's something that y- you only really can see 12 months ahead, but you really feel like that's, that's the right move. And that feels that's your gut, you know, and sometimes that thing that you thought might get you 12 months, gets you six, seven, eight, ten
0: 10 years, you know, you don't, you don't right. ever know what
1: you're stepping into and what's around right. two corners from here.
0: Um, well, and on that note, I mean, you know, you've, you've got a significant catalog of, of, of uh, records released, uh, you know, touring for, for, as you say, decades. I know house shows mm-hmm, have become a mm-hmm. focal point for you, which I think is fantastic. Um, I have several other friends. We probably have mutual friends yeah. uh, who have, uh, Gabe Dixon comes to mind, who has, you know, yeah. uh, done quite well there. And so, you know, has, has again have these various facets of your of your work of your career kind of fallen into place as they come to you or or is there a is there a puzzle that you've put together you know so thinking about the artists other artists perhaps earlier in their career that are listening Mm -hmm. um you know understanding again it's not as you say a master plan but but Mm -hmm. how do you sort of put all those puzzle pieces together and and uh and and kind of look at those as your as your career as it stands today
1: yeah well i think you're right i mean i i think the point you're making is it 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 is part random opportunity and, and, and um, willingness to risk, but it is also along with that um, intention and strategy Mm -hmm. and thinking critically about how am I going to make this work and treating it like a, like a job, a great job, Um, but being willing to take it seriously. And I mean, I, I have a lot of young artist friends in Nashville who, are crazy talented, more talented than me by a, by a long shot. Um, But they kind of have this idea in their heads that, you know, they, 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 they're like, you know, it's not, it's not cool to, you know, treat it like, you know, to be all calculated about it and be all like, Mm -hmm. I just want it to like, I just want to let it happen organically. And I just want to like, I just want to like, and so they, they keep putting out really good music that they are paying for by working a lot of other, jobs which is which actually I think is a great idea but what but year after year they keep doing it and they can't manage to make it go anywhere because they just want to book a show and just have a bunch of people show up and have a thing happen and lightning strike
0: raise a, a good point in terms of the ability for artists to um, find their way um, and 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 to by that I mean determine how they best can make music full-time and mm-hmm. so I, I know Derek you have spent quite a bit of time helping them do that. I'd love to talk a little bit about the, the online course that you built or courses that you built to, to help artists um, uh, shape their career. Sure. Well, so for me, um, you know, I think probably
1: anybody in any discipline you, 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 get to a point maybe, I mean, I've been, as I've said, you know, I've done this for, I'm in my 20 something year of playing music as my job and, you get to a point where you you start to realize that if if um my use of what i know is the only use of it then that doesn't really feel like um that, that that's that's it it feels like um especially the indie music scene it kind of feels like one of those either we all make it or none of us make it kind of situations and right. you you start to um at least me and my friends in Nashville like you the the natural instinct is to start to want to be generous with what you know and to know what other people know. And so you and um you know you, you want to get together and find out what are your friends trying and what's worked and what are they trying and not working so that you don't waste your time trying that or whatever mm-hmm. it is. And and I think it was a combination of that of just realizing, oh, and I don't know if that's I mean I know a lot of people talk about kind of mentorship and things like that. And I don't know if it's that so much as just um that that moment where you where you kind of it kind of hits you that like oh you know if if i'm the only one benefiting from whatever knowledge i've managed to kind of gather together then that doesn't feel like a great use that that's like it's like you you kind of want it to scale a little bit and you want to feel like it um could could benefit other people and so i wind up having as probably a consequence of living in nashville i wind up having Uh, or over time I had more and more young artist friends come to me and just want to ask questions and just want to like, Hey, help me think through how to, I've got this EP or this album finished and help me think through how to distribute it, help me think through how to market it, help me think through. And um, so, and what I realized is that, um, you know, I just don't as a physical human being who lives 24 hours a time and has to sleep some I just don't scale that well. And I just can only have so many coffees with so many friends. And so that's kind of where the idea for the online course came from. And um, along with another pal of mine who runs an online course business, and he, when I was talking to him and just kind of saying, hey, man, like, what what am I missing about what I do and opportunities to do it better and for it to benefit people? And he said, well, you know, do you think you could, like – literally take your experience of 20 some odd years and could you externalize it and could you lay it out into a curriculum and show and and communicate it to people and I said well I don't know so I started working on it and figured out that I I really enjoyed doing it so I put together about five or six hours of video classes that they're under four categories it's like writing touring um recording and and basic running and structuring mm-hmm. of your business and it's uh it's about a 5 or 6 hour course um and it's just kind of like it's set up kind of like master classes where you you know it's uh you you can watch it uh, at your own pace and you can go back and rewatch and there's a lot of additional resources like email templates that I use for booking house shows and um things like that and then some special guests some artist friends and producer friends who I interviewed and and then we've got I'll tell you and the coolest part about it is we've got a slack a uh, a slack group um of indie musicians from all over the country who uh and we play each other our stuff we talk about what we're doing we we celebrate our wins once a week with each other of things that we've managed to accomplish and figure out and you know and I get on there just like the rest of them and we we talk this stuff out and I think that's one of the things it's like it's uh, being a a, having an, a, a career in the indie music scene, you're a real solopreneur right. and that's a, and it's, it's hard. Like you, you really need some kind of community or some kind of, you, you need, it's important to have constant reminders that you're not alone doing it and you're not the first one to ever try to figure it out and that you're not reinventing the wheel every right. day. And it can feel like that. Um, every time I make a new record, I feel like, Oh my God, what am I going to do? How am I going to get this thing out? Who's going to help me? I'm all by myself. And it's easy to get discouraged. And so I think just having other artists, just having a reminder that they're out there and being able to benefit from maybe things they know that could help you, I think can be pretty huge. So that's so just a few years ago um, is when I developed that. So it's called Middle Class Musician and you can people can go to middleclassmusician.com and you can uh, I think there's at least the first hour of it is free and you can check it out and see if it. Seems like it's something for you, and if so, then the rest of that resource is available. That's great. Available. We'll definitely
0: include that in the show notes. Very cool, and I think it's it's interesting, yeah. but not surprising, but interesting to hear the parallels. You know, private Slack groups, um, tons of these within the startup mm. world, uh, which you know, I know you you live yes. in as well, and um, great to see that carry over to to artists who, as many say, and I believe to be true, are you know, solopreneurs, as you say. So um, that's right. You're running Absolutely. a small
1: business. If you're if you're if you're an independent musician, I mean, essentially, you have to remember what you are as a small business owner. Now, it's 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 always more than that, but it's never not that, mm, right? Um, so you have to think about it like a small business. You know, think about it how you would run a small business, and which means there are going to be seasons of investment, seasons of return. That means there's going to be, you know, you have to be strategic. You have to really, and and that's why you know my friends who go to school and get business degrees are the ones who I think are much better prepared for a career in indie music than the ones who got a music. Interesting.
0: Yeah. And again, I've certainly heard that. And I think, you know, here, here in Nashville, Belmont, Belmont's program and, and um, the investments that we see increasingly uh, in making sure that, that, uh, that artists do have that background. Well, uh, carrying on with the parallel of, of startups and and distribution, let's shift to streaming. Mm. So for you, Derek, what has been, um, you know, perhaps the highs and the lows, what have been the highs and the lows of, of this inevitable necessary shift to streaming, you know, over the last several years of your career? What, what, what have you observed yeah. that this maybe changed or impacted uh, the, the remainder of the other categories of your work? Right.
1: Well, as I mean, as I think, you know, we've kind of talked about some, I mean, the, I, I one thing I can tell you for sure is at least at this point, Streaming isn't coming close to replacing the revenue um, that it in, in the category where it sits, which is like people who are what used to be people buying albums in order to hear them, and now people are you know either paying for or enduring ads to listen to streaming services in order to have kind of everything. And but let me say this: so 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 far, the revenue is not. Uh, remotely mm-hmm. close to to what uh, to what streaming is replacing, but let me say this: I, I also don't think that it's incumbent on streaming to replace that revenue. Uh, I I think that revenue is gone regardless, and so at least the streaming services are attempting to replace mm-hmm. some revenue um, because it had already pretty much disappeared. I mean, you know, CD sales or music sales, I should say, you know, had had gotten pretty abysmal regardless, and um, but what I, what I will say is that we have to figure out how to work inside of the market as it is because the, the music-consuming public has clearly spoken right. on this. I don't think there's any debate anywhere that people 100% value or the majority of the people consuming music at this point value access over ownership that that is a foregone conclusion that boat has sailed so it's not there is no debate about is streaming good is streaming bad it doesn't matter streaming is reality so it's like be it good or bad be it profitable or not it is the thing that we have to reckon with and um you know i i think there are a handful of ways i think another big principle that i would say that might be helpful for people to understand why streaming might not be equitable because I know that some people that I feel like probably a lot of people are confused because you, some years ago you heard those early blogs about like Lady Gaga having like you know 50 million streams and making 13 dollars mm-hmm. or whatever it was like there, there there was all this there's been all this you know and and you know uh conflicting I think information and, and others where it's like Spotify's paying out you know point four zero four cents cents per stream or something and And which actually isn't terribly unrealistic, but what I would say is, um, you know, that with all that being said, it, it is getting better as the streaming services have more and more and more and more people subscribed where, uh, whereas there just wasn't a lot of revenue to go around in the early days. There are competitors now, which is better than it was in early days. I think, um, but but the main, I think, principle that could help people understand why is it getting better and why, why does it, why, in my opinion, what was it when it started fundamentally inequitable? And that is because creators and content owners are two separate groups. And so what was happening is in the early days of Spotify, um, and really still, you know, the people who are benefiting are content owners. And so like labels... They're making pretty good money on streaming um, there's a handful of uh, stories you can pick up where people re- there does seem to be revenue coming out. The problem is when Spotify started, they first of all they paid huge licensing fees to license all of the content which every platform has to do iTunes did it, every, everybody does that, which is essentially you know licensing all this content so that they actually have it all available. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what everybody has to do. The problem is how much of these gargantuan licensing fees went to the content creators, which is the artists, none. And then Spotify went further to dole out equity in their new burgeoning platform uh, to the handful of big record labels who represented all of the content in the world um, in order to kind of get a bet on both horses. So even if the artists got kind of screwed in the equation, um, the, the people who own Spotify and own equity in Spotify are still going to make out pretty well. And how much of that equity that was given to the big consolidated record labels do you think trickled down to the content creators? Absolutely none. And so all of the benefit of the relationship with Spotify was initially only focused on the content owners. Now, I said it then, and I, and I do see it changing, because of the, the indie music market as it is, more focused on uh, DIY, DIY and independent and smaller artists, we're, we're a, it's a market of a thousand niches now. It's not a hit-driven right. market anymore. We will always have hits, but the hits are smaller. There are fewer total artists having them. So the hit end of the market is not the focus anymore. Now it's that middle class, that, that blue-collar middle area, the long tail, as we say, area of the market where you have... You know, 100,000 artists, none of whom are selling more than 2,000 albums each, but in aggregate are selling in total more albums than the hit end of the market. And so all of the platforms is where where my former company, Noise Trade, comes into the conversation, things like that. But all of the, the support system, all of the business, all of the platforms that distribute, all of that is now focused on that long tail middle class segment of the market. And, um, so these are people who are not as, uh, enticed by major record deals and stuff anymore. So they're not going that route. And so labels are having to get more creative. The smaller indie labels are, who are, who are focused on selling albums into the niche areas of the market, um, are becoming more, you know, of an option and are kind of finding that they have a place in the market. So the point that I'm making is because, of the market shifting in the way that it has. And we're now maybe two, three, four generations into the shift. What's happening is because artists aren't going through the major label system, which was usually the place where artists were selling away all their rights and giving all that stuff to, to the record label in order to get mm-hmm. the deal. Cause the deal was the only way they could get their records into the market. That's not, that's not the case anymore. Now, increasingly the artists are both, the content creators and the mm-hmm. content owners so, and and that that is increasingly the case um, where the only way to get your records distributed and to get you know your records onto playlists and your records out into the world. Um, it used to be that again major record label deals were the only ways to do it, and the only ways to get those deals was to give up your publishing to give up your your rights and your ownership now that that 's not the case anymore, the ownership is slowly. It's just a, it's like an evolutionary process. It's just naturally staying with the artist, and so now that we have both a combination of higher subs- higher levels of subscribers of people who are paying for the things like Spotify and Apple Music, and this shift where the content is being increasingly owned again by the people who are creating it, it's slowly but surely things like Spotify are actually meaningful. Uh, and, and it just took time but for a good 10 years, or whatever it was five or, you know, almost 10 years, it was really a bloodbath for artists um, who did not own their content. Um, and there wasn't enough revenue to go around. I, I do have high hopes, though, I, I think um, I know that in my career, what I would do early on, even though people would say, Oh, yeah. Um, and this is really my conclusion here coming up. But people would say, Oh, you know, well, if if uh, if my record being on Spotify, that might be the, the thing people expect and want is to just log into Spotify and there's my album. They didn't have to buy it. There it is. But that poached my ability to right. sell an album to that person if they would have bought it. Then what I would do and what I saw a lot of artists doing, bigger artists like Coldplay and Radiohead and a handful of artists would do is they would just window their, their content onto the streaming platforms and not put up whole albums until many months later to kind of coerce – consumers to purchasing it and i and i you know you have to be a pretty big artist for that to work or you have to have a really in a a really specific and strong Mm -hmm. niche for that to work um so i would just put up a single or a couple of songs and then people would hear those and be like oh well i want to hear the rest and they'd go and find it somewhere else if they cared enough at this point man like i'm gonna have a new record coming out this year i think what i'm probably gonna do uh my strategy nowadays because here's the thing you've heard me say before and i'll say over and over again that the future of the indie music space the future of being an indie music uh an indie musician and really honestly in my opinion the future of every business not just the music business is super fans it is super serving the people who most deeply resonate with and care about what you're doing if you do that there is actually plenty of money to make a living at it it's the it's the 15, the 10 to 15 to 20% segment of your audience who loves you the most subsidizing hundred percent of your career. Now that's always kind of been true, but we have to focus on that now more than ever. And so what I do nowadays is I'll put a single up, uh, you know, just as like you normally would put up a single on, on, uh, on Spotify and elsewhere, and then do what I call a gorilla presale, um, For my album, which is like before it goes to the DSPs, Mm -hmm. before it goes to Apple and before it goes to Spotify and Amazon Uh, tour, it's only available on my website and it's a pre-order and it's a thing where people get, that's where you get, that's where people can buy the vinyl and the deluxe versions and they can buy, you know, the t-shirt and all the cool different things that, that, um, that I feel like my people want. Um, And they can get like an immediate download where with every purchase they get, they get the album before everybody else. Now, here's the thing. A very tiny segment of 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 the audience, or specifically my audience, is going to be willing to buy anything off my website. Like what we know is nobody buys anything off artists' websites except <laughs> super right. fans, because they will buy it anywhere mm-hmm. they can get it if they can get it before everybody else because they're super fans. And so, um, you know, so I don't. So that's kind of how I don't allow streaming services to poach my ability to sell records. Is I just run it early, um, maybe six weeks, two months before I'm gonna release it everywhere. And I'll even say that, I'll say, listen, here is the release date in, you know, at all, on all the streaming services, everywhere you can buy it, it's gonna come out on this date. But if you want it two months early, and if you wanna get it on vinyl, if you want all the things, then you can get it right now today. And, and there are a lot of people, and this is gonna be true on scale for every artist, who will buy it directly from you, will buy it early, If you are smart, if you know your fans, if you know what they value about you and what they care about, and you can offer them the right um, mix of experiences and products, um, you can monetize them early, and that's what they want. They want to give you their money. They want to support you. And then once those people had the chance to have that early, more intimate experience with you, then put it out everywhere. And in my opinion, what streaming services then become is just a great lead generator to slowly build your super I was super just, fans
0: in play. fact, that's just where I was going to go. And and you know, you have yeah. put in the work and the time, uh, and therefore now have, I'll call it the luxury in, in air quotes, uh, to. It sounded yeah. like, and you just confirmed it, to to approach streaming as the top of the funnel to to create exactly more right. super fans, um, which, which is not the exactly case right. For newer emerging artists, right? They are about building, uh, you know, following on Spotify, yep. getting playlisted, which, which, you know.
1: Well, and, and that's true. And, and so what did we say that, that being an indie musician is running right. a small business. And so if you're a brand new business with no market history, with no customers yet, then your whole focus should be on right. discovery, on just having people. That's why, you know, like if you want to start a cupcake stand before you're going to get anybody to pay you for your cupcakes, they have to try them and realize that they're great and worth paying for. So that means you got to give a bunch away. You know, stand on a corner and give your cupcakes away so people get a taste. That's why people give away stuff on end caps in grocery stores. Because if I try that and it's really good, I'm probably going to walk on down and buy some because now I realize it's worth paying for. So if you're at that early stage in your small business, a great strategy is to make your stuff available for free. And that's the season in your career where you're working some other job because music's not paying you yet. But here's the thing. That's your early sweat equity investment into your Mm -hmm. small business business. And if it's really good and if you're really smart and if you can manage to um, not put the revenue burden on your, your art too early and, have, and, and, and cause that to make – for you to make uh, – to cause you to make bad decisions and to make art that's maybe more sellable but not really as resonant, um, then you know, in, a, in a year, two, three, you know, if you've made good choices and you've been strategic and smart – you will start selling music to people and you will have a customer base to whom you can market and promote and sell. And it just takes that time. But like you said, if that's, if you're a younger artist, I think the streaming services are super good for that. And I think at that point, your strategy, as you said, is to have somebody help you get on some playlists, get discovered. Don't, don't worry about the money right now. Just get discovered. If, if it's good, the right people are going to find it and they're going to connect with you. And that's a great thing. And always have a strategy to harvest their data out of a, platform like Spotify into getting their email so that you own the the relationship with them and Spotify right. doesn't to where when it's time and you're going to come through their town, you can directly sell a ticket to them. Um, and if God forbid Spotify goes down, I know it seems huge and it would never happen, but that's what everybody said about MySpace <laughs> and, 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 and the people who were investing thousands of dollars into MySpace mm-hmm. connections um, and were not actually Turning that into real email connections that they own. When when MySpace went down, their whole career went down. Don't think that that couldn't happen to Facebook or Spotify. Great point, or cautionary
0: tale. Yeah. So
1: so yeah. So always be harvesting emails out um, in order that you can go directly to your fans and and market yeah, to them.
0: Terrific guidance. And I, I think you know, given for our listeners, we had a uh, uh, the. The inevitable occasional technical difficulty, which has created a two-week span between when we started recording.
1: And today, to the benefit
0: <laughs> yes. is I would love to pick that up and then shift, as I'm sure you followed, um, Derek, to the currently brewing battle that um, Amazon mm. and Spotify are going to file yeah. uh, a uh, – I'm suddenly forgetting the proper legal term, but they're they're yes. they're coming out against the Copyright Royalty Board's 44% increase. And uh, we'd right. love to just sort of get your take on that situation.
1: Ooh. Well, it's tough. An appeal. Because... There's the word I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, so they're filing an appeal. That's right.
1: They're, that, that's, yeah, they're appealing because they don't want to have to pay the increase. And I mean – I just – I see it – I mean, as someone who has run several small businesses and did, you know, have a startup and and does get that side of it, and I'm certainly a capitalist, and, you know, our, our structure is capitalism in this country, you know, and uh, and so you have to just tell a better story or a more profitable story if you want things to change. And um, I think the argument to be made – I mean, I, I think – I really see it from both sides. I get that these companies – I don't fault them for wanting to make more money and wanting to widen their profit margin. I, I don't fault them because that is literally what they're in business to do. They are literally, but um, I think what I liked about that, that bit of legislation or whatever it was that it was the artists saying, Hey, we want to adapt to new mm-hmm. technology. We want to listen to the market and we want to, come to them on their terms. And if they want to stream music, we want them to stream it. We just want to be connected with the audience. We want, but it has to be done in a way that is sustainable for us. And we need you as the digital service providers and as the people who are literally bringing this music to this audience, we need you to understand that um, there is a symbiotic relationship between us. And if we cannot afford to keep Producing the music at the rates you are paying us, then what's going to happen is you're going to have this super amazing shelf on which goods can be placed and no more goods on it because we cannot afford to continue making the music. And you're going to wind up with, you know, Spotify. Like, what would happen if suddenly Spotify, which is the coolest bit of, most convenient bit of technology with however many subscribers? What if all of a sudden, just imagine for a moment, you logged into your Spotify and there was suddenly half as much or a quarter as much or a tenth as much or maybe almost – there was 2% of the current content there where it could, not, it could no longer fulfill its promise of being like the jukebox in mm-hmm. the sky with all the music ever. What if you went there and you searched for some album you really wanted to hear and increasingly it just wasn't right. there? And then – your all your favorite artists suddenly, uh, you know, w- weren't putting out new music anymore because they were put out of the job because they couldn't afford to keep making it because it wasn't a living for them anymore. I think that you know what these what the streaming services are now protesting in terms of or appealing, I should say, was you know the music community trying to have a voice and say, listen, we want to partner with you to bring content to the market, but you can't do this without us any more than we can do it without you. But, you know, if we work to, um, if, if we're not able to, if we can't afford to continue producing the content that you are distributing, you're going to be a distribution platform without Absolutely. any content. I mean, that just, and so we have to figure out a way to make this work together. I'm, I was super discouraged, obviously, to see the appeal or, or the <clears throat> intent for the appeal Mostly because you look at these companies and you feel like surely they have the money, but I think that's why these kinds of – this kind of like being involved politically and socially as artists and as companies is important because that's how we make our voice heard. And we say, hey, if you, know, if you were to increase us and increase the pay, it still not, isn't near what you're replacing as we Absolutely. said earlier in terms of record sales, but boy, we're getting yep. there. And right as we're all getting a little bit encouraged, and like the money starts to seem like maybe this is gonna—it's a glimmer of sustainable, hope, it could be right, okay right. and and be a sustainable living for us. You're saying you want to cut it right out from under us again. Like it can't work this way. And and um, so I do see it from both sides. Well, but, and in fact, uh, I was going to
0: say I think you you to my mind have a uh, wonderfully nuanced, enlightened perspective, which is you referenced earlier the. Um, uh, shares that the majors held in Spotify yeah. and others and, and were, you know some of that money post DPO of Spotify did trickle down, I know. Um, but mm. I think and I don't presume to have the answer, but but what I take away from your conversation that I, I don't believe I hear often enough is the shared responsibility between uh, uh. the DSPs, Spotify and others and the majors uh, and the economic arrangements that they have. And and yep. and to my mind, at least, it is a shared responsibility that both the distribution points, the streaming companies, and the majors in between, are doing all that both can to assure that artists and songwriters are compensated uh, uh, appropriately. So, because
1: right. do these folks all not realize or see that if they put artists out of business, that it'd be like the, you know, like, um, you know, the uh, the 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 I'm trying to think of like a nature analogy. If suddenly something was done to cause the rain to stop oh, falling, oh yeah,
0: right. You can, like, like environmental collapse, right? The the ecosystem collapses, y- right?
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. If if we were, if the rains, if the rain didn't come down anymore, it wouldn't matter how how, how smart we were about how to, you know, put vitamins into soil and right. make crops grow quicker. If there's no crop, if there's no rain, you're gonna have fallow yep. fields you know, um, with, with, with no, uh, no crops coming out. And that's exactly what we're at risk of if we don't figure this out. But I think what I, um, I want to leave your listeners with is to underscore while we're fighting the good fight here, while we're trying to sort it out, um, th- this is all more reason why artists need to not anchor all of our hope and metrics for success and everything else on these Changing and evolving technologies, we need to remember that ultimately what's important um, and what's always worked is having direct connections, tunnels dug under all of these moving technologies and big companies and and owning the relationships with our fans and having their emails, having being able to directly connect with them and go directly to them to sell our records, to sell them tickets to our shows to find that small segment that deeply resonates. And because that is always going to be the solution. I mean, and so, yeah, let's keep fighting for our rights here. Let's keep fighting to make it equitable. Let's use the streaming platforms in all the ways that they ultimately help us. And let's, if that's where the fans are, that, as you said, is the top of the funnel to lead gen for us having more super fans to monetize. That's great. Let's do that. Let's be on streaming services. But at the same time, while we're doing that, let's get a bet on the other horse, the one that always pulls out in front, which is, Having that direct connection with our fans, um, owning those relationships, and that means email. Um, you know, let, let's be doing Absolutely.
0: both. Absolutely. You know, I, lo- I love the analogy. It's almost like you're a songwriter. <laughs> 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 it's almost like you've done this for a long time. Uh, no, but these, <laughs> these are are sure. analogies, and I think they're important points. Um, just great, great takeaways for for listeners. It's the only way to be impervious, too. Right. You know, Like
1: to 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 hope for the best, work work as though it's going to be the worst. And then always know that you've got your super fans to lend on, to lean on.
0: Well, you know, and that takes us to what I'd love to close with, Derek, which is, as you say, uh, not to uh, put all bets down, all chips down on streaming. You know, given your background, as we've talked about in recording, performance, touring, uh, your your startup noise trade and other endeavors, uh, as you look out both on the music and, and tech landscapes, what excites you? What do you see coming down the pipe in the next few years?
1: Mm. well and as you as you referenced then i think we're going to keep we're not going to keep a secret at this point you know that it's it's a few weeks between when we initially talked and when we're talking now and uh and you know and but you and i talk a lot about Certainly. this sort of thing um as we bump into each other around nashville and it's interesting um because you phrased that question just now a little differently than when we spoke <laughs> before and and so, so i'll say two things to that one is um There's a band called May that I ran into. I was playing, I played a showdown in Dallas for a thing, and these guys have been around for a long time. They're kind of a rock outfit, but they really were blowing my mind with their use as a, you know, a a big band, but a fairly independently thinking band with AR and VR. Now, I know that that feels like crazy future to most people, um, but they had some pretty impressive and pretty. Because, um, I mean, at the end of the day, yes, I love technology, I'm a total nerd, <laughs> but I'm also the most practical artist you've ever met in terms of, right, and how does that dime spent make sure, me a quarter? Sure. Like, I'm, ju- I'm just not, you know, I don't care. I mean, ultimately, I'm not doing it if it's not, if it doesn't make sense on a, on a P&L. So, so um, but I was really impressed with some of what they were developing and working on and some of the ambition they had for um, really bringing their performances up to a different type of experience and level with um augmented and virtual reality. Super exciting. I, yeah. I it it's just such an interesting space and here's the thing I love about it and this and I'm I don't want to get too philosophical but I feel like AR and VR especially VR when it's when it where it's total immersion as opposed to an augmentation of the, of of the real world um VR to me is like when used for what for what I think it it's is possible it's like an empathy machine because it gives you the ability to see fundamentally see the world from a different perspective and i think that's so fascinating and potentially useful because um and again not a, not to go no. off on a tangent but i had a i have a friend who works in this space at a pretty high level and he works with pretty major companies and he works in vr and he for instance was like doing it with like fabricating, he was working with a big company that builds retail spaces and designs retail spaces. And so he would, he was telling me this story, this is when the light went on for me, and then I, will, I won't say anything more about this, but where he was saying that he was, he built out this, this new retail space for this, this huge retail uh, company. And, and, he, and the way that they, uh, what used to be like, you'd have to mock it up and have them come to a place sure. and walk around and look at it. They can build it and fabricate it all out in, in a VR, a virtual environment put the, the, the headsets on and then they can literally walk around right. and experience what it would feel like. And then he said, okay, now let me change one thing. Hold on. And he changed the setting and all of a sudden they, their perspective changed. And there were all these spots were like, Hey, I can't like, I think there's something wrong with my headset or my controllers. Cause I can't get through like, it it's not letting me move into the space. And he's like, right. So what, so now how you're experiencing, uh, your, your retail space, you asked us to build out for you is as someone in a, wheelchair. Wow. And so now you can't see you've lost about three feet, three feet of height visibility and you can't literally fit through some of these spaces. Wow. And so experience that as someone with a disability. And now let's talk about how you want to play in your retail space. That's. And powerful. so what it is, is it, it, it enables you, it's a, it's an empathy machine. It enables you to literally be forced. It's forced perspective. Mm-hmm. And that's what mm-hmm. I love about it. And I think the implication into cr- cr- into art and I think is, could be crazy. It could be, so that, now that's way vision casting, you know, obviously. and uh, Well, and, it, so, and you I obviously
0: mean, have your, your friend you referenced and I'm doing some work with a VR company and, and music. And, yep. uh, you know, it is the, I happen to have stared recently at a lot of the market uh, data and forecasts. It It's coming at us faster than I think a lot of people realize. But as you say, I think, you know, think broad adoption, true, yeah. I mean know as, as the prices of the headsets yeah. come down and and i'm curious have you you know ar vr there's a lot of debates as to which is going to have the most impact which arrives first apple's investment mm-hmm. you know with iphone and um mm-hmm. ar i mean any thoughts on how that plays in music whether it's live performances or otherwise you know right we're, we're all unfortunately I mean, staring through our phones at, at these live events anyway
1: i know i know and i have i i mean and, and i think that you there's two polar sides of of that camp because one of the people who you know, bands who are really ambitious and really, and like, as you said, like where you would literally, they would want you. And I feel, and you too did some of this on their last tour that I thought was really interesting, where if you get your phone out and look at the show through your phone, there's all these additional pieces and things happening that are floating right in the air in front of you. And it's, it's heightened performance and heightened experience. But at the same time, then there's other artists. And I feel like it's a lot of, and, and some people do it in order to keep, um, when, when they're previewing content, I've seen a lot of standups do it, but it's like the other end of that spectrum where there are companies you can hire to come and lock people's phones into these bags, um, to where they literally have to have a purely analog experience in the room where you just have to look at the stage and you just have to look and be in the moment and not take pictures and not video and not,
0: you know, I I love uh, the Ryman of course here in Nashville is, is, uh, Notoriously, notoriously, you know, uh, strict about, you know, they, they walk around policing no phone use. And I mean, me as a fan who's there often, uh, Hmm. love it, but I also appreciate that the inexorable march of progress means that people are, you know, watching (laughs) through their phones.
1: Well, yeah. And so I feel like, again, this is going to come to the, to the particular uses and preferences of, of each individual artist. And do you, do you want to, is what you're making? And I, and I think this is what's great about art, honestly, Is what you're doing and the way you're doing it and the aesthetic and the values of how you do it, does it lend itself to a more purely experiential analog experience? And does that make you want to make certain choices about how you police that and how you engage your fans with that? Um, is Is that an experience you want to provide for your fans that might be more meaningful? Or are you making a different kind of art and music that maybe would be highly you know, uh, enhanced right. by some kind of augmentation or something that could be really cool. I think it's gonna come down to artists considering this alongside of everything else and saying, are these tools that we can use to make what we're doing better, more interesting, more engaging, more resonant, or not? And then you get to make creative choices. And that's honestly what I can't wait to see. I just can't wait to see artists um, with a couple of new colors, a couple of new pencils and pens in their box. And just see how they use it and see how some artists use it one way and some artists use it another. And I think there won't be a right or wrong about it. But I mean, I think that's a – as you said, I think it's probably going to be um, in our in – our, um, it's going to be in the right. vernacular a lot sooner than a lot yes. of us think. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm watching that space. I think that's super now, something fascinating. Something about – you
0: know, I, 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 I just suddenly flashed to thinking about the next evolution, I hope not, of uh, people – you know, at a live event, as opposed to staring to their phones, they're all wearing VR headsets. That's just not, I don't, I I don't know. want to be there.
1: <laughs> Maybe, well, but, but, but at happen. the same time, it's like, at the same time it, it, you know, in another sense for people who are, cause like, for instance, I'm like a little independent, you know, like I'm like a niche, 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 niche artist. I mean, I'll, I i can not go very far. I can't, I, you know, I, I it's been more than a decade since I've toured outside the United States. Well, I mean, Canada, yes, but not like sure. overseas, England, Ireland, Europe, anywhere. It's been a long time. It's impractical for me. It's hard. That doesn't mean there aren't people in other parts of the world who, yeah, who who might really deeply Uh, resonate with my story. Like, and and I would love for them to be able to get into an immersive experience and be at like one of my house shows. It's impractical for me to come to commute several thousand miles to play for 50 people in somebody's house. But imagine if they could be, have a perspective of sitting Two feet from me at a house show and be able to really have that whole experience, even, you know, call out their requests and who knows what else. And, you know, so for people all over the world. So what I like about it is if used properly, it could help to scale authenticity and it could help to scale that type of experience and make it available to people to where it's not upsetting or poaching or risking anything about the experience that people who I can reach are able to have. But it's able to create experiences for people who I can't reach, and that's yeah. And exciting
0: I think that the theme of augmentation, you know, be it in something like VR and hardware or artificial intelligence, I think is, you know, where a lot of my mental attention or my attention, you know, sits is is how can it augment? And I think you. You know, talking about uh, asking the question: Is this resonant uh, of new technology as an yeah. artist, and and how might you either choose yeah. to embrace it or, or to decide it's not for you right now? It doesn't fit your art, it doesn't serve your art, and your fans. That's right. yeah. Use
1: it or not. It's a tool. You're 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 a, you're a creative, and it's a tool. I
0: use it or not. This has been a terrific conversation. Uh, we will be sure in the short show notes, rather, to uh, make sure that everyone can find you on on Twitter, your website, uh, the middle class musician uh, site as really? well, and then the last question I want to. which I know it's going to be sometime in 2019 is uh -hmm. when can we all expect to hear that next fantastic record
1: oh man well I appreciate you asking and I am as I said in this conversation you know each time a new record comes up I I go and try to get just as creative about the distribution and marketing of it find the right partner for that particular thing and I'm in that process now but the record targets targets is in
0: the bag and
1: Targets is in nice. the bag. I'm so happy it's finished. I'm really excited about it. And, um, um, I'm, uh, I'm, that, that is what's funny is you work, you know, for months and months and months on something, and then you're finally relieved that it's done. And then you realize, Oh n- no, now the work starts. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you, if you've made something you're proud of, then it makes the work of distributing it and trying to, um, you know, uh, shepherd it and, you know, it, it makes it easier, right. and so um, to steward it. You know, so that's kind of. But I'm trying to figure it out now, and I hope Excellent. soon. Uh, but it'll definitely be next. We'll, week we'll all
0: stay tuned. Looking forward to it. Thanks so much again, Derek. Thanks for listening to this episode of Penny Lane. If you enjoyed it, and we hope you did, you can leave us a five star rating and tell a friend to support more great conversations and episodes. If you have feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at TrueStreamCo, that's at T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M-C-O, or send email to podcast at TrueStream.co.